Welcome back to uh, the morning session of the Cato Institute's 2016 Surveillance Conference. Uh, we heard a lot on our first panel about uh, hacking by the Russian government, but uh, our government, too, increasingly finds it necessary uh, in an era when uh, crimes may take place entirely in cyberspace to engage in uh, computer network exploitation, <coughs> hacking, uh, as a mechanism of conducting searches, ideally searches uh, authorized by the Fourth Amendment. But uh, this raises a whole welter of questions. Uh, is searching via hack fundamentally different from conventional physical search or indeed from wiretaps? Um, is the recent change to Rule 41 of criminal procedure expanding uh, the government's authority to use uh, hacking techniques um, uh, an appropriate mechanism, or is this something that Congress should develop its own framework for? Um, uh, uh, what should the posture of the intelligence community be towards vulnerabilities it discovers, given that, for example, we recently found uh, a leak of NSA hacking tools that had been hoarded, vulnerabilities that were not disclosed, uh, leaving uh, routers uh, manufactured by many major companies vulnerable. Um, so to address these uh, and the, the difficult questions of how to uh, regulate hacking by the government for uh, legitimate law enforcement or intelligence purposes, we have a fantastic panel uh, that will be introduced by uh, really probably one of the best national security reporters out there. Uh, uh, you have no doubt if you follow uh, surveillance and intelligence and national security issues at all, uh, relied on her excellent work over uh, many years, uh, uh, Ellen Nakashima of the Washington Post. Thank you very much, Julian, and, and thanks to Cato for sponsoring this conference and this panel. Um, I'm going to introduce the panelists now. I'm to my immediate right is Kevin Bankston, director of the Open Technology Institute at New America, think tank for the digital age. To his right is Amy Stepanovich, a surveillance and cybersecurity expert at Access Now, a human rights group. To my left is Matt Blaze renowned cryptographer and associate professor of computer and information science at the University of Pennsylvania. And to his left is Richard Downing, acting deputy assistant AG in charge of cybercrime investigations. So Julian gave a, a, quite a good and concise introduction to the issue. So I think we'll just dive right in. Take notes, though, as, we're, as we discuss, and uh, because we'll be leaving some time at the end for your questions. So Julian mentioned uh, earlier, earlier this month a new rule change took effect called a change to Rule 41, which allows a judge in one district to approve a warrant for law enforcement to hack computers outside the district. It allows the government to conduct remote searches, remote access searches, or to deposit malware on computers basically for two purposes. One, to identify IP addresses of computers whose locations are unknown, and two, to identify the IP addresses of computers that have been, say, enslaved by a botnet. So Richard, let's start with you. Why does the government need this rule change? And in what kinds of investigations? Thanks, Ellen. Um, the uh, rule change was, is brought about by uh, the advance of technology. Uh, this rule was first promulgated back in 1917, so it's almost 100 years old. And basically, the idea of Rule 41 is to set the rules for when the government 
uh, or how the government obtains a warrant for the search of a location. So this is the rule that governs searches of businesses and homes when there is probable cause and particularity and all of the bells and whistles that go along with our constitutional protections. The problem was that in 1917, uh, the rule makers thought, rightfully at the time, that the uh, investigators would know what court to go to. And the rule was, if you want to search a property in a particular district, you go to the court in that district. The difficulty that has arisen is twofold, uh, and they are both uh, problems that were created as, the, uh, as technology has advanced. <coughs> the first one is that we have uh, near-perfect anonymity systems that are now built that prevent law enforcement from being able to identify what the location of the computer is. So a network such as the Tor network, which uh, uh, creates a uh, anonymization mechanism so that when an offender, say someone who's interested in uh, exchanging images of child sexual exploitation, wants to communicate with others, he can do so through the network and in, uh, fairly effectively uh, prevent uh, law enforcement from knowing where his home is in order to get a warrant for it. And so uh, pr the one primary uh, mechanism, uh, value in this rule change, all the rule change does is say, in those circumstances where the uh, location of the computer is obscured due to technology, so it's a very slim thing, in those cases, you can go to any court that, has, uh, that, that relates to the uh, crime that's under consideration. So in 1917, that wasn't an issue. Today it is an issue, and so uh, the only change that's made is to allow investigators to know which court they go to to apply. All the same rules that would normally apply to warrants apply in this circumstance. Uh, Amy, Richard uh, makes sound like this change, he says it's very narrow, very restricted, um, and, and only in these cases where uh, you know, the, the location of the computer is unknown. Um, what, what do you say to that? And do, do you, I think some civil libertarians have raised concerns about um, the removal of the jurisdictional limits. Why? Sure. So the the, cha the rule was actually one of the few practical limitations we had in place to really broad government hacking. Um, and one of the problems with government hacking is that Congress has never considered this and has never passed a law explicitly allowing it. And the reason why that's important is because hacking raises all sorts of increased risks from other types of searches, wiretapping, um, stored communication searches, things that um, warrants have typically been used for. Um, and so when you look back when the Wiretap Act was passed, it was passed because it was considered, wiretapping was considered particularly invasive. Um, and the problem is hacking can be even more invasive than wiretapping, but we have no substantive authority, um, which means we have no additional protections that we think we need in place for hacking to begin with. How so? How can it be more invasive? Sure, so any number of ways, and I believe Matt might, might know a little more of the technical pieces of this than I do, um, but it is very hard to determine when you put malware, or the government says that this is not malware if they're using it, but when you put something onto a computer, um, it's very hard to figure out how that is going to interact with that computer, even if you test it, even if you have some sort of understanding. Um, I believe uh, Stephen Bellavin, who is a colleague of Matt's, has talked about an update to iPads. Um, you know, Apple tested the update, they knew exactly what they were looking for, and it ended up bricking any number of devices when the update was actually pushed through. So it ends up having a lot of unpredictable impacts. Matt, did you want to add a quick <coughs> word there? So I think, I, I, mean, I think the important thing 
to keep in mind here is yeah. that um, all of this hacking, or at least a large fraction of what we call you know, government uh, hacking and remote search, um, has at its core taking advantage of um, some kind of flaw or software bug in the systems that they're um, uh, that they're uh, searching, and you know, in some cases that might be a relatively simple thing, like convincing somebody to click on an email link through something that's not sufficiently authenticated. In other cases, it might be a much more subtle, much more um, technical exploitation of essentially an unintended behavior on the computer platform. And what that means is that, um, first of all, we can't predict with 100% certainty what its um, behavior is going to be and what its uh, scope uh, is uh, going to be. We can't, um, we can't be sure that um, uh, it won't um, get uh, out of control. We can't be sure that it won't uh, overcollect. And you know, under some circumstances, this may be an acceptable risk. Hmm. But it's one that um, Congress has never explicitly addressed. Uh, judges almost certainly don't understand when they're um, hmm. issuing these warrants. And uh, we're really on, on very much uncharted territory, both technically and legally. Yeah. You want to I, I just want to add to that. I, Richard, go ahead. Um, I mean, I think there's a broad concern about this ultimately led to basically a tacit approval by Congress of remote access searches, um, which they've never done before and which we've never really had any meaningful <coughs> policy conversation about and actually know very little about, even though we do know, thanks to FOIA, that the government's been doing it for at least 15 years. Um, but I also, on the particular, the particular risks, there's also, in, in comparison to wiretaps, is there's a difference between me wiretapping you for 30 days or, say, 90 days with extensions, and me having access to your entire computer and everything on it and the camera on it and the microphone on it um, and the accounts that might be accessible from it. Um, recognizing that the government does have a problem, how do we identify these people who are using anonymizing proxies, I would have been more understanding putting aside that broader question of tacit approval of uh, a tactic we've never really talked about, uh, I would have been more comfortable with a rule that said, if they're obscuring their location, you can do a remote access search to obtain their location and nothing else, and then go to the appropriate court, if it's even in the United States, and get a warrant to seize the computer. But that's not what this did. So you're saying that there aren't sufficient restrictions on the... Yeah. Uh, authority here. Richard, I'd like, could you address that, please, that point? Sure. Um, I think the important thing to understand here, which I alluded to at the beginning, is that there are many rules that already apply every time that the government wants to use a warrant. Uh, we still have to comply with the Wiretap Act if indeed that would be part of what was the execution would be. But more importantly, the Fourth Amendment has many different layers of protections. First of all, you'd have to have a warrant uh, that presents probable cause and particularity. That is, you have to specify particularly which computers that you would be involved with. Then there has to go to an independent judge who gets to review it and evaluate the facts that are presented and decide whether this is a justified search. 
Then, on, layered on top of that, there's a Fourth Amendment requirement that the execution be reasonable, that it can't be overreaching and uh, overbroad. Further, there's many layers of safeguards and review after the fact. So if there is any uh, over-collection, that's the kind of thing that our system is uh, very good at ferreting out through the process of discovery and through criminal prosecution where suppression would be a remedy if the Fourth Amendment's been violated. And the victims get to sue the government if there is a problem or a constitutional violation. What I'm saying is there, is, there are a lot of rules that are involved here, and uh, in our view, those are the kind of protections that are, uh, that are important in protecting our constitutional rights. Um, of course, we're open to a discussion about whether additional rules might be useful, but I think the important question to ask is, what is it about the current system of robust safeguards is it insufficient uh, to address this kind of collection? What sorts of safeguards do you have in place to account for the sorts of uh, technical issues that Matt raised and also, you know, potential over-collection, for instance? How do you di notify victims who might have... Right. Have so the, uh, the question of is it possible that um, the government's activity could damage a computer or uh, do something in inadvertent or inappropriate in the course of doing what the thing is intended to do, which would be to collect evidence of the case. Of course, uh, as searches happen in the real world, searches in online context or remote searches also have risks inherent with them. Nothing is going to be perfectly risk-free. I would say, though, in the majority or the, the sort of heartland of cases where a targeted um, uh, remote search is done against a particular individual's computer, the risk, or anyway, the, the potential harms are really quite limited. The computer stops working. Okay, um, that's bad. It's in, not something anybody would want, but it's hardly uh, some sort of broad systemic problem. I think what Matt was alluding to is the fact that the second piece of the rule is uh, useful in the context where there are many, many computers perhaps that have been infected by bots. That is, malicious software is already installed on those machines. Criminals are controlling those machines, often from outside the United States, and bad things are happening. <coughs> and so the question is, when if, and we haven't uh, done exactly this, if there were an opportunity to do some sort of search of all those computers in order to mitigate the bot, that is to liberate them, those computers from the hands of the people who are criminals who are controlling them, in that situation, is it possible that you could have inadvertent results? And I think the answer is, as I said, also possible. Um, in the past, when we've done this sort of thing, though, we've been very careful and very thoughtful, and we've worked with computer security experts both outside of the government and inside the government to try to make sure that whatever we're doing is going to do no harm and to, uh, to, to, to our best to do that. We do tool validation and testing. And indeed, so far, we have a clean record of being able to do this effectively, but of, also, of course, we want to continue working with the private sector and others to make sure that these tools are used appropriately. I think the key question I would have, and I'm interested to see if any of the panel have, uh, have thoughts on this, is at the same time that there is a potential risk over here, we have a very real risk that is ongoing harm to the people who have those computers. And when you have situations where uh, hospitals are having their computers bricked as a result of ransomware until the ransoms are paid, I think we have to really seriously consider whether some potential risk over here is balanced by the fact that we have a very real damage that's going on and <coughs> it's being sought to be prevented as a result of this sort of activity. So, so I'd, I'd like to react to that um, a little bit. So first of all, let me, let me start by saying that, you know, I'm not um, speaking from a position of being, you know, unconditionally un uh, opposed to 
uh, remote searches. In fact, um, uh, with my colleagues uh, Steve Bellavan, uh, Susan Landau, and Sandy Clark, who's uh, uh, here, we wrote a paper on uh, you know the the uh, technical inevitability and preferability of remote searches um, in certain in certain cases. But I think it's really important not to um, um, to uh, be too confident. Uh, about how well these tools work, particularly as, as we scale up. I mean, first of all, um, for precisely the same reason that you're able to exp uh, do remote exploitation of computers, um, uh, software is hard. Um, software is so hard that, in general, we don't know how to build it correctly. And software with security implications is particularly hard, particularly fragile, um, again, particularly when it's being installed on a computer whose configuration you may not actually um, be um, fully uh, aware of. Um, and so I think, you know, any, um, you know, confidence that these tools um, are actually working as intended has to, you know, be understood in the context of this is an, this is not just a hard problem, but it is the fundamental problem of computer science, which is that we don't know how to build, in general, reliable software um, at scale. Um, and so, you know, you're working in absolutely treacherous territory when you do this. And what that means is that, uh, first of all, the only thing that we know that works is relentless scrutiny. Um, in uh, the case of uh, you know the legal system, uh, you know a discovery process where the defense gets to apply scrutiny to that would obviously be something that would be you know not just um, not just nice but probably essential. Um, and um, you know uh, other kinds of just relentless scrutiny to this. The other the other problem is that um, when a judge is authorizing this, they're authorizing tools that they um, very likely don't fully understand both the scope of and the risks of, because this is largely uh, new territory. When a judge authorizes a search warrant uh, to you know, physically break into a house with a, a, a no-knock warrant, you know, a judge pretty well understands what, that, what precisely that is and what can go wrong. Um, you know, it's very unlikely that a warrant for a specific house is going to end up inadvertently searching an entire neighborhood or an entire city. Um, and, um, you know, in the case of a remote uh, computer search, uh, both the targeting, the scope of, uh, of uh, what's collected, and the uh, um, potential for collateral damage are really much more difficult to pin down. It's easy to say what the tool is intended to do, it's harder to say what the tool actually do. So this is, this is very difficult technical territory that we're on. Mm -hmm. And so, Kevin, do you think we need a legislative framework to, to regulate these sorts of uh, remote access searches? Um, and, and how would you account for the technical difficulties in such legislation? That's a big one. I mean, ultimately, absolutely, we need a legislative regime to govern this, just like we have for wiretaps, especially considering this raises all the same issues that wiretaps raise, as well as a bunch of other unique ones. Um, I don't, you know, I'm not certain how best to address the issue of minimizing the technical risk from the deployment of the tools. Certainly, I appreciate whatever internal measures uh, the DOJ uh, uh, is engaging in to try and, you know, quality assure that. But mm -hmm. um, those are, that's just 
one branch of our government. We actually need Congress engaged in that discussion. We need the courts engaged in a way that they haven't been so far because, as Matt says, they often don't understand what they're approving. And there are some interesting transcripts from one of the cases where a NIT, a network investigative technique, has come up where the judge was struggling to understand what the concept of, wait, you send instructions to the computer? What is that? What is that? Are you calling it? Like, what do you, what do you mean by sending instructions to the computer? They're not actually necessarily grokking that we are installing new software on the computer that is going to do these operations and send back this information. Um, and that's a problem. And, and I, I take, I take uh, Rich's point uh, about the Fourth Amendment as, as, as the rule. But I liken this to, we have a problem of the surveillance systems, both in terms of law enforcement and in, in foreign intelligence, being so secretive that it effectively prevents us from making good policy making on them. You know, one of the best examples is in 2005, when we finally learned, thanks to a uh, one buck in the system magistrate who published an opinion, that the government had been doing live cell phone tracking for over a decade uh, without warrants and, in fact, using a statutory authority that's supposed to be reserved for stored records. And we didn't even know. Um, there weren't public discussions about this. There weren't public court decisions about it. We had no idea it was happening. And, and, and we see the same kind of ratcheting up phenomena in foreign intelligence. Peter Swire wrote a great article about this called The System of Foreign Intelligence uh, Law. I, I wrote a similar article about applying his ideas to law enforcement called Only the DOJ Knows. And so, so to hear the just, just trust the Fourth Amendment and that we in the courts are going to figure it out when, as I said, they've been doing this for a decade and a half and we're only now just talking about it, rings kind of hollow. Um, I also want to talk a bit about the botnet yeah. provision. Uh, one, I think it's a misnomer. What it says is if we are investigating a Computer Fraud and Abuse Act you know, crime, an unauthorized access crime, and the computers or media we want to search are in five or more districts, then we can go to uh, any of those districts. Um, so one, it's not limited to botnets. Uh, it's, it, it could be used, for example, as an alternative to busting in and grabbing the computers of a suspected hacker. Uh, hey, let's, hey, guys, let's just do it from our desktop and remotely search his computer before we announce ourselves by busting in and taking his computer. But also in terms of the botnets, we're talking about you know, potentially tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people. That's why we're, you know, we've been talking about this in context of mass hacking, who are innocent people whose computers have, have been unauthorizedly accessed and are now being used in a botnet. Um, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of innocent people whose, you know, you might say it's not a big deal if someone's computer gets destroyed, but I think for that individual, it's kind of a big deal. Um, what do you mean by destroyed? It would actually when he said, when, bricked. Yeah, it would not be, hopefully it would not explode or anything, but yes, but become non-functional. <laughs> Um, there is some precedent for exploding there, phones, <laughs> but, yes. and you know, but it, it raises the question of, of how 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 are how do we handle those people? Because those people, they're likely never to learn. Like say say my my refrigerator, my <coughs> my refrigerator that's been been part of a botnet gets accessed, and in the process, the government gets a lot of sensitive data about well my diet. Um, we could pick a more sensitive uh, Internet of Things item for the hypo if you like. Um, they're never going to be prosecuted. Uh, and I can't think of any way you'd notify that person. Um, well, that was so. one of my questions, actually. So, so Richard, mass, mass hacking, um, mission creep, notification, lots of 
questions for you to answer. <laughs> well, I guess um, if I could respond to this uh, question about I'm, whether. Actually, I'm sorry. One very important addition, 10 seconds. I'm also very concerned. I've heard Richard, as well as other people, publicly say that this provision will help them go after and shut down botnets, implying an intent to actually disrupt the functioning of the computer in some way. And I don't see how Rule 41 authorizes that beyond a search or seizure of data. And that, that really worries me. If we're turning the warrant, rule, the warrant into, a, into a stick that we can actually like damage stuff with, that's a new development. So uh, I'm not sure I can answer uh, all of the points made, but I do want to make a couple of points. First of all, um, on the question of secrecy and whether this could um, be done in the shadows and, and we never know about it. Actually, that's one of the strengths of having this be part of Rule 41, is that it's going to make sure that these things are brought to judges and approved and that there will be clarity when these things come to court because there will be litigation around it and there will be suppression motions. And in fact, the court system is pretty good at sussing out the issues and trying to figure out what the answers to these questions are. And indeed, right now, as a result of the investigation of a uh, Tor hidden service, a website on the Tor network uh, that involved uh, the exchange of images of child sexual exploitation by about 100,000 users. Um, this investigation remo uh, resulted in a uh, remote search. I'm, I can't go further into the investigation. But what I can say is that there are, at present, hundreds of these cases now that are going to be brought across the country as people as these cases are being brought. So I think we're going to see courts looking at these questions. I think this is exactly what we would want as far as transparency. On the question of whether the exact details of the exploit should be disclosed to the defendant, I think that's a very interesting question that we are beginning to see in the litigation around this. It's a question of discovery. How much does the defendant need to know? And of course, the defense, defendant in cases have constitutional rights to defend themselves and are entitled to material that would help them in their defense. Of course, balanced against that, a little bit on the other side is, if you disclose this vulnerability or this method of, of entry into the computer, uh, then it will no longer be useful. That is, it will be outed and it will not be, it, presumably systems will be patched and it will be no longer useful for the purpose of, of the law enforcement activities. But it's an interesting question because I think in many cases, the method by which the search happens is actually not terribly relevant to the defense. That is, it doesn't go to the person's guilt or innocence. It's not creating evidence that's sitting on his computer. And so in many ways, it's kind of like asking, what is the brand of the sledgehammer that has been used to knock down his front door? The important question is, was a sledgehammer used? Yes. Did it knock down his front door? Yes. Everything, that's going to be debated. Was that proper? Was it reasonable? All those kind of questions. But does it really matter the intimate details of how that entry was made? And so that's, I think, one, going to be one of the interesting questions that the courts are going to wrestle with as this goes ahead is, does this actually materially help the defense in some way? Or is the government's need to have... Um, under established doctrines, uh, secrecy about particular tools and techniques, uh, is that going to be uh, outweigh um, the, the, the defendant's demands for disclosure? Um, there were more here, but um, maybe I'll stop there and we can come back to some of the others as well. Hey, Amy, I think you wanted to. Yeah, I think this brings up an interesting point because we're talking now about disclosing to the defense. Um, the vulnerability use. But if you pull that out a little bit, one of the major issues is if you're disclosing to the provider, to the person in control of the software, the vulnerability that's been used. Um, because it's, you know, the, the sledgehammer in the front door example, it's this, if that, if they have a sledgehammer that with, you know, can knock down a front door and 
50 million people have that same front door and use it every single day. Should you tell the front door manufacturer, like if there's a key that can open the front door, I guess is a better example. And that same key can open all of them. And if somebody else finds that key, they can open all of them as well. Should all of the other innocent people using that front door not know that they have a vulnerability in their front door that needs <coughs> to be fixed? Or should the person who makes the front door be able to fix that? Um, there is a process in government for this. Um, it was re reinvigorated is the, is the term that was used. Um, after the heartbleed bug was discovered because there was a lot of speculation um, that the NSA may have known about the heartbleed bug and not disclosed it because they were taking advantage of it for intelligence matters. Um, and so the White House started this process again. It's called the Vulnerabilities Equities Process. Um, it is unclear to the extent it is being used for all of the bugs that are out there. They say it's being used, um, but we know, for example, that the bug used in the Apple case in San Bernardino was not put through this process um, because they never took possession of it. It's supposed to cover every time the government discovers or comes into possession of a vulnerability, but this one kind of was like a black box and they never had it, so they <coughs> don't put that through the process. And it's also not codified, and so the first panel was talking about a lot of the uncertainty of the policies that are in place right now, as opposed to the laws, and whether or not they will continue into the next administration. So in addition to the fact that it's unclear how often it's used, we also don't know the fate of it come January, if that process will continue to operate. Right, you so, uh, so I just want to point out, we've, we've sort of conflated two issues um, here when we talked about uh, uh, disclosure. Um, the first is, uh, disclosure of you know when when we use the sledgehammer analogy, um, you know that that might be a nice simplifying analogy, but unfortunately it, it glosses over one of the important uh, parts, which is that we don't know that it's actually only a sledgehammer. Um, we know that you know it's it's being used with the intention of using it as uh, a specific kind of uh, tool, but we don't know what else it does. And the only way we have any chance of being sure. Um, of what its behavior is, and even there, this is imperfect, uh, is sort of relentless scrutiny and uh, examination. So the, the first problem is we're not actually sure it's only a sledgehammer. Um, the, um, and, Matt, you know, can I just interrupt yeah. And so, but the interest in knowing whether or not it's just a sledgehammer or if it's greater is, is for greater cybersecurity for the public, right? Well, not for the defendants. Well, defense. it might be, it, that part might be relevant both to the public and the defendant, right? So the, it, it's relevant to the defendant because, you know, the question of did this expose more data, did it actually only um, yeah, um, uh, limit the search to what was uh, specified in the warrant? Um, you can really only know that by looking at the tool itself. Um, we can also only know if uh, you know there might have been other damage done to the computer that perhaps you know didn't result in this uh, going to the government, but might uh, have uh, you know exposed information or damaged the computer in some other way. The only way we can know that is to examine the tool in the context that it was actually used, uh, preferably by you know an adversarial process that's given sufficient resources to look. And even there, that's imperfect. The second problem, um, and this is the much uh, broader public problem, is that uh, these tools generally involve um, exploiting vulnerabilities uh, that could be used not just by the government for lawful uh, uh, 
um, warrants and lawful searches, but also by criminals and by foreign uh, uh, hostile nation states uh, and so on. The Are same we generally talking about zero days here? Uh, sometimes they're zero days, um, but they don't need to be. In fact, you know, probably um, zero days are, are the most uh, prominent. That is, those are vulnerabilities that no one actually knows about that have been discovered for the first time um, by the people who built the specific tool. Uh, but there also might be vulnerabilities that are known and that are just being uh, uh, applied to this tool because they haven't been, been patched yet. The lifetime of vulnerabilities tends to be um, uh, tends to have a fairly long tail um, uh, before they're uh, patched, even even after they've been disclosed. Um, if there's a tool that the government uh, is using um, uh, based on a flaw that isn't known to the vendor or wasn't known to the vendor to be um, exploitable uh, remotely, uh, there is a risk that someone else will discover the same <coughs> flaw and use it for, um, for very bad purposes, you know, potentially against the government itself. Um, we don't really know uh, very much about uh, how often that happens because these tools are shrouded in so much secrecy. So that's one area where greater transparency, you think, is, is essential. That's right. And, there, there, and this is an example of something that requires both very subtle technical and very subtle policy judgment that really can only be achieved by more transparency than should we've that, got. Should that be a policy change or a legislative change, do you think, guys, to... So, I mean, speaking generally, mm -hmm. we want Congress to regulate this activity, including enforcing a level of transparency at the very least similar to what we have in the wiretapping statute, which also would include, for, for that matter, actual data about how often this is done and how many people it impacts, which right now we have no freaking clue. Richard, would, would, you be, would you be opposed to such um, requirements? So um, we're in a obviously uh, a transitional period in the government, so um, I can't begin to predict what the next administration would do. Um, what I can say is that I would uh, encourage you to take a look at the um, a blog post from Michael Daniels, who's the White House cybersecurity advisor uh, from a couple years ago. And what he says is that um, basically lays out, I think, a pretty solid argument that everyone across the country, including the government, relies on computer networks. Uh, disclosing vulnerabilities is usually going to be make sense because that's going to provide protection and security for everyone. Um, however, there are legitimate trade-offs. And so there are going to be certain circumstances where there is a need for this tool um, this uh, undisclosed vulnerability in order to solve some crucial intelligence problem. And you can just imagine all of the kinds of things that come into that category, also public safety, so terrorist attacks or theft of our trade secrets or you know, child uh, sexual assault. And so building a stockpile of vulnerabilities that's going to harm our general security is not a good um, uh, policy decision. But that's not the same thing as saying that we should never do it. And therefore, that's why we have the Vulnerability uh, Equities Process, or VEP. And it doesn't create any hard or fast rules, it, but it does lay out the kind of criteria that are going to be considered and, frankly, make sure that, that uh, those, those are the kinds of considerations. So how significant is the risk? Does it affect our critical infrastructures? Is it patchable? 
Um, has it been, is it likely to be discovered by someone else? What is the intelligence loss that's going to occur if we release it and it becomes patched and then unavailable? I mean, those are the kinds of questions that the VEP right. would ask. And I think that's a pretty good set of questions that you would want the executive branch to be making these decisions and trying to weigh and doing it in, a, in an appropriate and, and robust way. Do you, do you, a DOJ or an FBI, uh, submit all the vulnerabilities that you use in your exploits through, you know, for the NITs to this BEP, to this process? So um, I've now exhausted the scope of how far I can go. Um, I'm clear about what uh, has been made public, but beyond that, um, I'm not um, at this point uh, entitled to um, talk further about what's going on in the, in the behind the scenes. Well, no one will know. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, the, the, this, this process itself, as uh, you mentioned, is, has been new, is newly invigorated. It came about also as one of the post-Snowden uh, transparency reforms. Do you think that this is another, uh, is, is something that ought to be codified, put in statute? Sure. Um, How would you strengthen it if so? I mean, I think that's exactly the kind of conversation we want to have, including <coughs> hearings, which we haven't had. I don't want to jump in front and say, this is how you would necessarily draft a, a VEP statute, because we, we still don't have a great deal of information about it. We appreciate the transparency that the Obama administration has engaged in to t tell us about it and give us some vague idea of the criteria they're using, but we don't really know who sits at the table, how often they meet, the number of phones that have gone through the process. Um, they've thrown around a vague number of 90 plus percent ultimately get disclosed, but like out of how many, how long were those held on to before they were disclosed? Were they exploited before they were disclosed? Questions of that nature. We really don't have any of, of that kind of information. And, and so I think the first step here in deciding how to codify this process, I think, I think some kind of version of this should be in law to, to protect us, um, I think the first step would be actually having hearings about it and, and having an engaged Congress uh, working on it and looking at it. Yeah, I mean, I'd also point out that this is an example where the devil is entirely in the details. Um, you, know, you know, we can all agree on very high-level principles that kind of no one would disagree with, that you know, there will be these cases in, on one end of the spectrum, and there'll be cases on the other end of the spectrum. Um, and you know, that's almost none of the cases, right? You know, there's this large middle ground, and making sensible judgments about that middle ground is going to require enormous uh, both technical and policy um, expertise. So this is a non-trivial task that this, um, uh, you know, that whoever the arbiters on the vulnerability equities uh, process are, um, you know, they have to be both technical and policy experts with access to a very deep set of detail about what's going on. And this, this is, this is not something that can you know, simply be you know, a few people who meet every quarter. And, and to bring it almost back to where we started, now that Congress has allowed the Rule 41 changes to go into effect by not acting to stop them, um, and there are several, several um, measures introduced to postpone those changes just to give them time to address um, what they should do in light of government hacking. Um, and I believe Senator Cornyn is the one who blocked all of those um, postponements from, from going into effect. Um, 
Now they're going to enter 2017, and this really should be at the top of their agenda. Um, all of the issues we've, we've talked about here, um, the vulnerabilities equities process, um, a potential Title III or, or rules for warrants for government hacking, how, what transparency measures need to be in place. Um, Congress has really kind of put it on themselves, the onus back on themselves, that they need to be considering this um, first and foremost as we enter into the new year. Um, because this activity now, they've basically implicitly blessed. They've allowed this argument that by not acting, they've said that this is okay. And I'm not sure a lot of them would agree with that, but that's going to be the argument in court now. Hmm. Uh, Matt, you, you talk about the need for judges to also have uh, greater technical expertise or understanding of, of the issues that they're, they're ruling on and, and, and also the, the participants in the VEP to also have that. So do, do you think that there, is there a need for say a special uh, technical judicial advocate in the courts and then another special you know, technical uh, expert on the VEP? What do you think? Well, so, you know, I mean, I think, you know, I, uh, I wouldn't say how to actually structure it, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, I, I would say that almost all parts of this require a significant infusion of technical expertise at almost every level uh, that's not currently there routinely. And, um, you know, certainly, uh, you know, in the case of a judge who's being asked to sign a warrant that isn't fully understood, um, mm -hmm. you know, there, there is room for judges to ask questions. There's room, you know, to do things like appoint special masters. Um, uh, you know, there's, there, there are, I can imagine mechanisms uh, uh, for doing this, but what I, you know, and I'm not going to say, be too prescriptive about what we should do, except to say that we really urgently need to do quite a bit uh, or this could have far-reaching unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. I'll just add, I'm, I'm curious if, I mean, judges have a bunch of young people working for them every year to two years, the, these law clerks. It'd be great if they started favoring hiring young law students who also have a tech background or going ahead and hiring some non Law, non-lawyers to you know who who serve as clerks simply to assist with technical cases. I think that might be one of the easiest injection points of tech expertise into the mm -hmm. into into the uh, uh, the bench. Yeah, and so, some law schools are actually starting to set up some joint programs with cybersecurity and computer science departments and law. So I think they're trying to move in that right, including at Penn. Right. I would uh, agree absolutely to the idea that there should be a greater technical understanding in our court system. Um, I would moderate that, though, a little bit by saying, except that the courts, this is not a new problem for them. They've been dealing with technical issues uh, extensively, and um, we've got patent suits. We have all sorts of uh, other kinds of suits in the courts that require technical understandings. So. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't want, uh, my, my experience with federal judges is that they are not shrinking violets and when they don't understand something, they're gonna ask questions and they're gonna get to the bottom of things. I don't wanna undersell the idea that, uh, that the courts actually are pretty good at figuring out difficult questions or getting the special masters or resources or briefing or whatever it is, testimony, to get to the point where they can make good decisions on these things. I guess, uh, let me just other respond to the Congress should act immediately question. I guess the alternative to at least acting with respect to whether we need new rules for remote searches is to say, well, um, we have a bunch of safeguards and, and uh, greater clarity that's going to be coming. 
maybe we should wait and see whether there are, uh, the court system is able to deal with these questions and whether there are any abuses that come to light and, and that sort of question. I think we are going to see a lot of activity, as I mentioned, on these cases that are coming up. Um, and of course, uh, from the department's perspective, we are um, committed to being uh, good uh, partners in figuring these things out and being clear about what we're doing when we are using these tools and under Rule 41 and going to the courts and doing those things. So I think uh, it's an interesting question, but uh, definitely one that um, uh, will be interesting to see what the next Congress and next administration wants to uh, do with it. Uh, in, in just in terms for a minute of of unintended consequences. I think there have been instances or cases where uh, the, the law enforcement agency, in fact, in 2013, I think there, the FBI obtained something like 300 individualized warrants to target specific users of an anonymized or anonymous email service called TorMail. And the idea there was to infect the computers of just these users and not all the other innocent users of TorMail. But according to some press reports, apparently the way in which the FBI deployed this um, software ended up infecting everybody who just logged into the actual um, TorMail homepage. Uh, so it, it, it seems that even though that may not have been the intended, uh, you know, consequence, it, it, it did, you know, end up infecting uh, completely innocent people. So, I mean, I guess, Richard, does it mean sometimes there are unintended consequences, right, that arise in your So, um, I can't without speak commenting to this on the specific particular case, case um, but in general. But, um, as I said before, um, no activity in human life is completely free of all uh, chance of error or whatever. Although I would dispute the point that there's been some systemic problem or some greater issue that's gone on, I think we've actually done a pretty good job so far in making sure that the tools are acting in the way that they are. Um, and if you think about um, a situation where you know a particularized offender is using a particularized email account and you um, set up this remote search to affect only that person, that's actually a pretty targeted search and not an overbroad or overweening kind of situation. And have you known that approach to actually work? To, to to target that, and you've used individualized warrants to target them, and that has worked. Absolutely, yes. There are situations okay. where um, uh, that's, I think, going to probably be the more common case, not this idea of the mass uh, search or this mass activity, which has attracted a lot of the interest. Hmm. Um, but if you've got an individual who's, let's say, uh, threatening to kill a government official, and you have a pretty good reason to believe that it's that it's real, and you have very short time deadline to try and figure out who the individual is, you can imagine law enforcement is going to be trying to find a way to identify that individual, and it's going to be targeted and specific because you have that probable cause to do that. Um, obviously, these are going to be case by case, and they, as I said, have to be particular, and they have to have probable cause, and they have to be evaluative judges, and all those built-in safeguards are going to be true, and if we mess it up, then we can get sued, and if, if it's overbroad, then the, the defendant can bring uh, a suppression motion, and these <coughs> things will get worked out in the courts, and hmm. so I, I, I really uh, think we do have a strong court system and a strong system that can be and will be applied to these Rule 41 uh, warrant situations, um, the same as it has for the last 200 years. I mean, I'm curious, and maybe you can't say this, but were all of those people notified that they were searched such that they could challenge the fact that they had their inter communications intercepted? So that's another value of the Rule 41 process, is that 
uh, indeed, uh, it requires that the person be notified. Of course, um, it doesn't require um, completely and endlessly exhaustive oh, efforts. It requires reasonable, effort. reasonable efforts. You've got to do your very best, and it may vary, and it will probably have to be run by the judge before decisions are made. But yes, in, in the cases, for example, where uh, the, the people are using a uh, child pornography website to exchange images, most often that's going to be followed up with a search of the person's <coughs> residence to obtain the evidence from their home that's going to be used in the, in the trial to come. They're obviously going to be notified. We, Rule 41 requires this. This is, this is part of the transparency. What you don't want is to have this stuff being done outside of the court system or not with the review of the judges and not within the transparent and you know, protective process that we have developed in the courts. Okay. Yeah, so I just, one, one quick reaction. You, you mentioned that you think that, that you're doing a pretty good job of making these tools robust and secure. And I believe that that's, that's true. But I, I just want to point out, you know, Microsoft and Apple and, and Linux and Android and uh, Adobe and so on are also doing pretty good jobs of securing uh, uh, platforms. And we are in a terrible cybersecurity mess, right? Uh, you know, the, the pretty good job um, that uh, is uh, being done is unfortunately still uh, not so great. Uh, you know, we are, uh, software is hard um, and, uh, you know, uh, it, I, I think it's really a mistake to get too overconfident that uh, that uh, these terribly imperfect software development processes um, are, are always going to work the way we want them to. I'm not suggesting that we should be overconfident. I think we should be very careful. And as I mentioned before, mm -hmm. we do look carefully and test and validate our tools before we use them. But I think it's a slightly different question on whether um, you can create a truly secure uh, piece of software that will not let anyone in, obviously, as you say, that, that's a big problem. We've got hackers that are able to break in all the time. And isn't the government's activity pretty similar to the hacker side of this equation? You don't need to be able to secure the whole system in a perfect way. You just need to use one particularized vulnerability that will get the, the narrow piece of information that you need in order to proceed with the mm. case. Kevin. So, you know, I just wanted to flag this, this Tormail example, you know, this was basically a bunch of people who I would say suffered a you know Fourth Amendment level search or seizure of their data. Um, ironically, because they were using a service to protect their privacy, but basically this impacted everyone who was using the service at the time. Um, that may have been an unintended consequence, which is worrisome, especially when you think of the other scenarios where unintentional con consequences might impact hundreds or thousands of people. There's also a perhaps even more worrisome possibility that the DOJ, after getting those 300 individualized warrants, um, decided we think how we are technically implementing this is the best and most reasonable way to do it, and we will incidentally be impacting these people, but we'll minimize out that data. Um, and based on, you know, likely some, some legal memo in, you know, the computer crime and intellectual property section of the DOJ that has never, you know, been in a brief in front of a court uh, that, that has not been tested. And, and that's, that goes back to my theme of this, this curious and worrisome ratcheting up of the authority based on sometimes extreme legal theories that haven't been put to any test and, and may not be put to any test un unless and until actually someone moves to suppress in a criminal case. 
the reason I, I don't think that actually makes sense is that my understanding is by depositing the malware on the Tor Mail homepage, the government was now unable to actually identify the IP addresses of the individuals, the 300 individuals that they wanted. So it basically made that whole effort pointless, which to me doesn't make any sense. Why would you? It'd be a good question for them to answer, and yet because they don't want to talk about any of these <laughs> details or release them to the defendants, it's kind of hard to even have the conversation. So I got to respond to that. Look, <laughs> I'm not not answering because I don't want to tell the public about this. Right. It's an ongoing case. There's continuing investigations. It, it, we have a firm and reasonable policy that we can't talk about cases that are going on for fear that we're going to jeopardize the investigation or all the other things that are going on. Um, you know, and I'm not indicating malintent. I'm just pointing out the policy problem that that raises when we can't actually discuss. And yet, they will be notified because Rule 41 requires it, right? And I would say these are all speculations by so all the innocent news users. reporting of people who are dreaming up ideas about what might have happened. All the innocent <laughs> users will be notified as well, those who've had their... Uh, so it requires you to computers. notify pe the, the people, the owners of the property that okay. were searched. Well, it so does it, now. What's that? It does now, right? I mean, are, are you talking about the amendments to Rule 41 or? So the amendments uh, require reasonable efforts in certain circumstances, right. yes. But reasonable efforts is not no efforts or no thing. If we are able to identify the individual, then that person will get notice. I suppose it's possible that you might not, if a tool didn't work, for example, we didn't actually do any searching. No, we're not going to notify anybody because the search didn't happen. I mean, there's all sorts of permutations here, but in any case, Rule 41 takes this into account and requires the kinds of notice that are reasonable, and people will get notice if their property was searched. In a physical world analogy, if, as rarely happens, but does happen, uh, the police get it wrong and they've searched the wrong house. They're across the street from the search scene where they thought they were going to be. Does the person whose house get... Uh, the search gets noticed? Of course, yes, that house was searched and therefore they will get notices of the search even though it was unintended or uh, mistaken. I'd like to um, switch over for a minute now to the um, to, to encryption and lock devices and I think Matt raised uh, uh, something that you said you've, you've advocated I think along with Susan Landau which is one alternative to say uh, uh, decryption mandate to mandate you know, exceptional access or back doors into uh, devices is to allow the government with a warrant to essentially hack the endpoint or create an exploit that will allow them to remotely access the locked phone. Um, tell, <coughs> tell us why you think that's a good idea, and then I'd like to get, you know, your responses to that. Sure. So I, you know, so I think we're, we've been hearing a lot about the going dark problem, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, the solution or, you know, a certainly a centerpiece of the solutions that have been offered by the government have involved some sort of uh, built-in backdoors or key escrow or um, design mandates to allow for uh, lawful access. And, you know, that, uh, unfortunately, is uh, likely to make our currently horribly weak and fragile infrastructure much weaker and much more fragile, discourage the use of uh, tools like cryptography, um, discourage uh, the use of uh, good security practices, and create um, centralized points of failure where none 
currently exists or, or, or need to exist. So I think there are compelling reasons to uh, very strongly oppose any kinds of design mandates um, uh, of the kind that are being um, advocated for. That said, um, as, as, we, as we can see by uh, the expansion of Rule 41, uh, in um, many, and I would argue uh, the majority of cases, uh, search of the endpoints by exploitation of, of vulnerabilities and so forth is a viable alternative to that. And, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, we're seeing it done. It's happening. Um, the legal rules for that are unclear. Um, uh, the Rule 41 change is the first sort of codified place where we're seeing it addressed, and I think it really does need to be addressed by Congress. But I think, you know, it's, it, it, it's, simply the case that, the, you know, this has been done for a while, it's going to scale up, hmm. and we need to confront in, in law and in policy um, what the rules for that um, uh, going forward are going to be as it scales up. Hmm. Kevin, go ahead, I'll follow. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I think that, I don't think there are a lot of people in the privacy and civil liberties community who are fans of government hacking, who want to say, go government hacking. Um, but, but we also, I mean, if there is going to be a in continuing increase in the deployment of strong encryption tools, which we're a fan of, um, and there is not some sort of mandate that that data be accessible by the government, which we are not a fan of, um, there will be more government hacking whether we like it or not, and the question is, what are the rules for that activity? I just want to flag a big concern that sort of brings together both of these issues uh, and highlights the need for, for, I think, amongst others, congressional action, which is um, how they might implement that government hacking in a way that would basically be a backdoor and hurt all of our digital, digital health, and that is um, subverting the software update systems um, through which we receive all of our security updates from the companies. Um, this is an idea that is, is occasionally tossed around as a potential way to deliver uh, malware to, to access encrypted data. Um, and I think it would be an incredibly dangerous thing, and yet I also think that our current technical assistance provisions around surveillance uh, uh, could be read potentially by a court to allow this sort of thing. Why is this a bad idea? Because we are basically in a digital public health crisis. We uh, are, are facing many grave ills. Uh, the medicine that we get for that, the vaccines that we receive, come through these secure update channels from the companies. If and when it becomes public that the government has subverted that trusted channel to actually decrease our privacy and security, um, you will have a lot more people avoiding those updates and it's sort of like people who aren't vaccinating against diseases. By their making that choice, they are making us all less safe because they become hosts for the thing that might infect us. And so I just wanted to put a, a strong stake in the ground to, to flag this is a huge risk, and it's something, it's a, it's a path we definitely don't want to take. Uh, for what it's worth, our, our host, Julian, has, has written about this point, uh, as well as uh, Chris Segoyan and several others. But I think it's mm -hmm. important. And I just want to pull it back to the, to the international perspective on this a little bit because we have to remember that the internet does not stop at the, the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans on either side of the United States. And it actually is used globally 
Um, and so both from the going dark perspective, um, the U.S.'s rhetoric around whether or not we are going to undermine encryption or whether or not that's acceptable has provided a lot of wiggle room for other countries to pass laws or implement policies that actually do undermine encryption, um, either um, give them authority to outlaw end-to-end -end encryption from being used by companies. Um, in some cases, there are laws now that require end users to install backdoors on all of their devices within specific countries. And so there's that element, while at the same time we are talking about government hacking without having rules for it. And so we are seeing other countries also pick up on that. And in the UK, for example, we just had a law um, receive royal assent, the investigatory powers bill that formalizes UK government hacking authority um, that might allow the UK government from a objective read to do exactly what Kevin was just saying, which is try to force com companies to implement backdoors and security updates. And so by not acting in a out front way to protect privacy um, in law affirmatively, we are not only allowing these conversations to kind of wither and die in the US, but we're allowing great room for security to, to be lowered across the board outside of the country. Um, and those effects are going to be felt in the United States without question. Mm -hmm. Richard, did you want to weigh in on that? I know you're also very concerned about the international climate. Um, so. Certainly, um, <clears throat> speaking to the international question, um, this idea that, uh, that US policy, which I think has been pretty equivocal on this subject, is um, the main motivator that's letting other countries do uh, things that, that some of us may not like, um, I think is um, missing the mark. Um, other countries face the very same public security and national security problems we do, and I suspect they are going to try to address those problems as best they can and within their own political systems, uh, regardless of uh, our positions on these things, but certainly regardless of the middle road that we seem to have taken over the last few years. Um, let me address just a couple of other things. Um, I think as far as uh, is this a solution to the going dark problem, um, I think uh, I agree with the comments that have been made so far. I think it is a, a sort of inevitably going to be part of what the government will end up doing. And certainly when there is an opportunity like in the San Bernardino case where a tool becomes available that can be used to execute a warrant, um, it's going to be used. Um, I think, though, we should also be clear that it is by no means a 100% solution to that problem, and for a couple of different reasons. Uh, investigations, at least on the law enforcement side, need to be targeted and timely and calculated to produce admissible evidence, and each of those three things can have some difficulties. Um, targeted, if you've got a particular offender that you believe may be committing some serious crime, it can't be a perfect solution if you are lucky enough to have that person be using an operating system that happens to have a vulnerability, that you happen to have a tool that will address. It's going to be a catch-as-catch-can situation uh, at best. Um, also, uh, it's, uh, it's timely. Is, the, is that tool available now, or do we have to wait a long time, as in months and months from the uh, San Bernardino case? Or frankly, in the case of hackers trying to break into something, they generally do it over a period of time and often were, spend a lot of energy doing that. That may not be acceptable in the context of law enforcement investigations. And then the admissible evidence question that I've dealt with a little bit already. Uh, let me um, offer one other uh, counterpoint here. Um, 
uh, Matt pointed, uh, the, the, said the common thing that we've heard uh, from a number of places about how creating a mandate or a backdoor solution or whatever um, words you want to use for that would have grievous uh, security um, harm to uh, the average person and the users. I would encourage us to ask for the evidence on that, to sort of probe this question a little bit further. Because if you look at the way that companies and agencies and individuals behave, uh, these end-to-end -end solutions or these uh, solutions that don't allow um, uh, there to be any interference in the middle uh, are, are not the norm. And uh, if you look at, for example, the Department of Justice, which is extremely concerned about our um, security, um, there is an app that sits in the background on my phone uh, that lets the government have access to the device when it's needed. And yet, that is exactly what uh, the problem was in the San Bernardino case with the, the iOS. Similarly, if you talk to network defenders, they're actually pretty worried about end-to-end -end encryption because when you have phishing schemes that are going after uh, access to their networks, it's much harder to in intercept those things and block them at the, at the, at the gateway um, if the communication is encrypted end-to-end -end and unavailable to the individuals. And then uh, you would have to ask questions like, why is it that Gmail, which doesn't use uh, that kind of encryption that um, uh, makes it inaccessible to the provider, um, why is that not a backdoor, if that's what the question that you, the way that you want to characterize these things? And why are we not saying to Gmail, how dare you access your customers' emails in order to sell advertising to them? Uh, or put another way, if we're okay with Gmail doing that, why are we not okay with having the public uh, security benefits of it? Uh, aren't those just as important as the ability to sell advertising to customers? So I, I would encourage you to ask this question in a little more deeply way. What is the security benefit here? And is that security benefit, in fact, worth it when it comes to the public safety harm that is resulting from uh, the end-to-end uh, uh, encryption by default. And now we'll turn it over to the wolves over here to attend. <laughs> I was about to offer it all in French, but, <laughs> but uh, we'd like to leave a little time for questions. Uh, I mean, then, then, oh, no time. Yeah, we want, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'll just say, I, I find it shocking in an age where um, we are seeing a former secretary of state, a major political party, you know, hacked, you know, Sony hacked, their emails spilling out everywhere, all these nude photos coming out of iCloud, um, that it's hard to recognize what the security value of using a more secure option is. I, I, I think we should be, you know, I, I think there are a lot of people, especially in politics in Hollywood right now, that are starting to use email less because it is riskier. No one's saying Gmail's super insecure, it, but it is certainly less secure than an end-to-end -end solution, and we actually need to be promoting the spread of that technology rather than trying to dampen it, considering just how dire our cybersecurity situation is. Counterpoint, how were those computers hacked, was it through phishing? Because if it was, that's gonna make be worse in a situation where end-to-end -end encryption becomes the norm. Okay, great. All right. We could go another hour if we st stayed on this topic. Yes, so we could. Let's uh, open this up to questions. Um, we're gonna bring the microphones around. Please uh, identify yourself and uh, ask your question in the form of a question. Thank you. This woman right here. Hi, Carrie Debra, the Center for Copyright Integrity. I went online to research something because I thought for a second from what was being bandied about out there that I forgot a fact. Tor was created by the government, by a naval employee, Paul Syverson, 
who gets royalties every time it's used. ICANN was released by the government under the Clinton administration. All of these domain names that everybody is using for uploading nude photos, which they shouldn't take anyhow, and for ISIS is all done through the ICANN out of California, which went September to Switzerland. Let's remember where this all started. So what is your question, ma'am? Sorry? My question is, why aren't you talking about the correct origins of ICANN and TOR? These dark things did not just pop out. Government employees and academics had access to them. Um, emails actually exchanged in the RFCs so said maybe we shouldn't be using this stuff. I mean, I'll just briefly respond. I, I'm not sure how ICANN is relevant, but in terms of Tor, yes, it was developed by Naval Research. It is open source software. I don't believe anyone receives a royalty when it's used, but, but it's important to understand its origin was, one, to protect our own spies. Um, you know, they need, they need secrecy, too. And also was heavily funded later by the state, our own State Department, to help defend human rights outside of the US, um, uh, the rights of dissidents and others. And all, all I would say is, if it's good for them, it's good for us too. Like, uh, uh, if, 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 if the US uh, supports people outside of the United States having these tools, they should support <coughs> people inside the United States having these yeah, tools. Yeah, I should just interject. I, I should say, I'm, I chair the board of directors of, of the TOR project, and uh, I assure you there are no, if there are royalties, um, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, yeah it, there, there are no royalties, it's all free software <coughs> and so on. Uh, I, I should also point out that one of the reasons that TOR uh, is open to everybody to use is that it's simply not possible to protect our own spies and our own government employees who are using it without the cover of the general public using it, right? Anonymity and privacy loves company uh, in that sense. And uh, that's, that's simply part of, of how the technology has to work. If I could just oh, add sure. one quick thing. I think there are people, though, out there who are asking the question of has it outlived the value? Is the benefit worth the cost? And as I mentioned, uh, the investigation of sites where there's absolute rampant criminal activity going on I think it's a fair question to ask, how does that balance work today? Okay. There's a woman in the green sweater in the back, please. Jim Manamusa with the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. I think that Can you speak more yeah, directly into the mic? I cannot hear a word you're saying. Is this better? Okay. Yes. Jumana Musa with the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. I just think there's been a huge missing piece of this conversation when we talk about the process and the notice and how it works, and that this is based fundamentally in the state's ability to incarcerate someone, to deprive them of their liberty. So when it comes a question of notice of the techniques used, I think the government often has these uh, you know, sort of blanket comparisons, like it's a sledgehammer, as if... It's one uniform thing that only operates one way. So I think I want to get to the point that when you talk about using these techniques to break into computers to investigate people and prosecute them and potentially deprive them of their liberty, it is extremely important that notice is there. I think the government knows full well that there are many ways in which that can be done um, you know, in camera, not in open court, not in a way that releases the information to everyone, but gives the defense an opportunity to examine how a computer was broken into, searched, what were the parameters, what, what might have operated differently. And so I, I would like to someone to address the piece of, or to differentiate the piece between what a traditional search warrant does, 
the ability to challenge it, which frankly is quite limited. The suppression remedies often don't come through. Um, and how this technology being used changes that considerably. It is not a place where you can go and look and say, they searched my home, they hit these three places because I can tell her I was there. And so I would love someone to address that, particularly from the technology piece, but also from uh, the rights of, of the accused in a criminal case who do have the right to confront the evidence against them. So um, I think I touched on this briefly before, but um, I agree that the courts have a lot of tools that are useful here in trying to sort out these questions, and they're going to do that in due course. Um, there is, however, a long-standing rule for decades and decades that there are certain times when there is a technology or uh, uh, something that um, has particular investigative value that will lose its investigative value if it is disclosed broadly. So take, for example, uh, how a uh, particular recording device is shaped. Um, it is, of course, useful to the future mobsters to know how we are concealing our recording devices. It's generally not that useful to the defense to know what the exact shape of the device or the color or the size or the battery life or whatever it is. That there was a recording, of course, is critical. That the recording happened in a certain way is, of course, critical. Turning over all of the relevant stuff to the defendant makes sense, but whether it's useful to know the exact shape of the device not so much. And so courts have traditionally tried to balance these kinds of questions. And I expect um, that's the kind of debate that will happen as we go forward with this. If there is a situation where the code is indeed needed in order for the defendant to be able to evaluate what the scope of the search was, then yes, then that's probably something that would have to be turned over, or at least turned over in camera with a protective order to the defense. But if it doesn't have any materiality or relevance, what we really need to know is what was searched, how much was searched, when it was searched, what was the scope, and those questions can be answered through other means, then I think courts are likely to look at that and say, we're going to use the traditional rules and say, this piece, this technical specification doesn't need to be disclosed. Thank you. So, uh, I, let me just interject one quick point to that. The lifetime of these tools is much, much shorter um, than the lifetime of you know, a, a recording device. So you know, it, it's entirely possible, particularly as this scales up, that on the time frame of a criminal prosecution, by the time that disclosure would take place, those tools are on, well on their way to being obsolete. It's a fair point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, All right. Here, well, I want to leave uh, time, time for lunch. To, uh, uh, have a bite of lunch. Uh, okay. uh, but um, if you'll join us upstairs, we'll have lunch from uh, noon to about 1.10. Uh, I think C-SPAN cuts away here, but if uh, those watching at home would like to see uh, the lunch keynote by uh, civil rights uh, legend uh, Wade Henderson, uh, you can... Uh, catch our live stream at cato.org. Uh, please join me in thanking our panel. <laughs>